0: hi everybody and welcome to another episode of vet chat and today i am made up to be joined by another graduate from without any shadow without the best university in the world some of you may and some some issues with that statement but we have it written on paper that, that way back when when we were all there liverpool was definitely the best vet school in the world so so yeah so I've, I've made a statement on a podcast and therefore it is official truth so rosie alistair graduated a couple of years before me even though she still looks a lot younger than me in 2005 she is the current vet life helpline manager which I'm sure those of you who've been watching all of the things that have been going on in the profession over the last few years and especially over the last six months has been um, inundated with, with people to support and also, for me, really encouragingly inundated with offers of people who are looking to help as well. And, and I think that is, is a real encouragement and testament to the people that we have in the profession. Now, as if Rosie's career hadn't been busy enough, she decided to take on a PhD several years back with the easy to say title of the veterinary transition study investigating the transition from veterinary student to practicing veterinary surgeon and it was a prospective cohort study and I made up that I got that out correct and all in one. In fact we both had to check the title of it before recording this. But at a time of year like this when so many people are going from being a student to be in a practicing vet. And of course, this year is different to any year in 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 living memory for all of us in the profession. I think that's incredibly pertinent because of course there's not only the traditional stresses and strains that we would associate with with being, you know, a new grad in whatever line that you choose to go down, but there's everything else that COVID has, has thrown into it. And Rosie, I just wanted to start by by picking your brains and saying, look, you know, what is what stands out between that jump between being a vet student and, and becoming a practicing veterinary surgeon, because of course we get handed our certificate one day and it's not like medicine and dentistry where you have your F1, F2 or your VT years. It's like, right, okay, there's your stethoscope, here's a knife, crack on. So, you know, what, what's, what's the challenge that we face as a profession with that sort of phase
1: It's one of the big challenges that affects us as a profession, so not just the individuals going through it, but those of us who might be supporting people going through it or who might be creating positions for new graduates is the level of responsibility experience mismatch as I called it in my study that um, new graduates face and one of the interesting things about the responsibility experience mismatch that new graduates face is it is a really really big range so we are not giving all new graduates the same level of challenge. The interesting thing is of course, lots of us had experiences when we graduated where we had a big mismatch between responsibilities we were given and the level of experience we had. And a lots of us were thrown in the deep end. And yes, eventually, you know, we did get swimming and it was hard. One of the things that this study really showed is that that process going through it doesn't help people's mental health at all and so one of the things that if you want to help people's mental health is you don't need to make that as difficult for people so supporting people through that transition and where people were supported through that transition in a more gradual way in a way that involved more communication um, between what the person needed so rather than having a very set idea about what support someone needed negotiating that with them and understanding that with them um, that went much better for people
0: and obviously, like, I mean, you know, you, you've been a new grad, I've been a new grad, I dare say, after the first month and a half, after I'd written off two of the practice cars, my, um, my bosses were regretting taking me on as a new graduate back in the day. But, you know, I dare say even in that, you know, decade, decade and a half since we graduated, the, the expectations have changed massively. And, you know, you touch on that responsibility experience mismatch. But, like, for me... I wasn't. I wasn't really. I don't. Well, I don't feel as though I was expected to hit the ground running. You know, I I was really lucky, I suppose, in that I had a practice where it was like, right, okay, we're going to hold your hand. You're going to go do this, 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 and the other. And then, you know, when you're ready, then you can fly solo. And I, I have a lot to be grateful for from that. But what, what sort of, what challenges do you find that new graduates face that maybe we, as more experienced clinicians, have? I dare say forgotten that we faced or, or maybe don't realise that they face.
1: Sure, yes. Yeah. So I suppose one of the things here is around the issue of what gets called in business onboarding. And also something called acculturation, which is um, getting used to the, the way that the culture of our profession works and the things that you you pick up by being with vets and you pick up by role modelling and you pick up by doing the job sometimes. And those things, I think we can say, you know, we can teach those at vet school and we try to teach those at vet school. But I think some of them actually you, people do learn much more from being out with vets, from seeing practice, from seeing how things work. And obviously that's something I think we need to be thinking about really carefully this year. for people who may not have had all the EMS experiences they were hoping for, who may not have had all the rotations experiences they were hoping for, that we really look after people during that period and we think about how um, we onboard them, as it were. So one of the interesting things from other industries is that onboarding is not always associated with the levels of stress and difficulty that we see in our profession. So this isn't an inevitability. This is something that we are doing and we have a choice about whether we want to continue to do it. The one thing I would say from my study, which followed people from their final year through, out through the first couple of years in practice, is that some people had really brilliant experiences. There's some incredibly good practice out there. Some places did shadowing, particularly ambulatory practices, practice that did shadowing. That can be a massive help for people. Places that really considered very carefully when to make people do their first soul on call. And I think first soul on call is something that's a really big marker for whether this is going well or not for somebody, for me, having looked at a lot of different people's experiences. So people who were put into first soul on call early, yeah, they eventually got to a similar point as other people did, but it was a much harder road. I'm just being asked to do stuff on your own unsupported um, learning through the types of experiences you can have in that unsupported space versus having really well supported on call and that can be incredibly difficult for practices i know that are facing staffing issues but it's so important if we want to protect future staffing by doing things like retention rather than allowing that attrition um, that happens when people feel really underconfident or really stressed
0: yeah and i think it's interesting something you touch on there about the support that is given when you do your first on call and i remember like One of my sort of less pleasurable experiences was my first week. Literally, I I left Liverpool on the Sunday, started my job on the Monday in Newcastle, and I was on call the next weekend. But I did have backup, but it was distant backup. So I was doing farm animal practice and equine practice up in Northumberland. So, like, you know, I, I could very comfortably drive 250, 300 miles a day between calls. But my boss was always on the end of the phone, and he was and I don't know, and maybe you'll have some insight on this, I don't know whether it was right. It'd be be a sounding board, but he'd want me to do the work because he felt I'd learn from that experience. And I think for me, I I did learn. I certainly had good and bad experiences. Certainly not everything went swimmingly. But is there a a balance to be struck between sort of, you know, the hand-holding, but also the sort of, right, okay, I'm going to push you through the door a little bit here. What, what's the right way for a practice to kind of go about that?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, and you, you touched on something that really interested me in the study. So obviously, I follow people to two years post-graduation. And one of the things we know about our industry now is that people who are a couple of years post-graduation now are often people who are certainly supervising new graduates. Um, sometimes the most senior vet in a practice at certain times. You know, those things can occur that people very early in their career are in those sort of quite. More um, senior positions without backup, and one of the things that interested me was that people who'd had experiences of sort of baptism of fire being thrown in the deep end, these kinds of metaphors, they did tend to replicate them quite quickly with new grads that they met. And so, one of the things I think about changing this is actually us being prepared to think: well, even though it happened to me, could what happened to me have been different? And you know, do I need to do it for somebody else? And not everybody replicated it, but a number of people did and despite having had one of the interesting things about a cohort study is you get people's current experiences and then you get their reflections back on them so although people had had a really horrible time maybe during this very difficult period They then said, well, I survived it and it didn't do me that much harm. But actually at the time it was really horrible and they were having considerations about leaving and things like that. And so I think if we want to support people through that, sometimes it's about kind of breaking that pattern of like, well, just because it happened to me, that may be the only reason I'm doing that to the next new graduate is because that's the only pattern I know of being a new graduate. So maybe we just need to have some, some models and some ideas and some examples of really good practice about how it can be a lot better than this.
0: Obviously, you touch on, like, you know, experiences of really good practice. I wonder if you've got sort of examples of things that, you know, have really almost inspired you, really, to think, actually, do you know what? This is – these guys have got it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I suppose for this, it's about treating people like individuals but also having support in place and not having any sense of failure or someone's not good enough or not working hard enough and they need that support so what you sort of typically think of is psychological safety in the workplace that ability to ask what might seem like a stupid question no one's going to think it's stupid everyone's just glad that there's a question glad to support glad to help that doesn't some people think oh well, does that make people too dependent no it doesn't if you destroy somebody's confidence i think that it makes things a lot harder it's much better to build someone's confidence so the kinds of really good practice were things like like the shadowing that i mentioned like really good clear onboarding so giving people time to get used to practice computer systems those kinds of things because actually that can be where some of the stress sits and some of the slowness that you feel as a new graduate sits just trying to work the software if you've not used that before so just a bit of time to do that kind of thing Support with that kind of thing as well, like actually having logins and email addresses and all, all these kind of really practical things. Making sure they're paid on time, um, making sure they get the money for petrol, making sure the car, you know all those kinds of things. Actually, if you haven't got those in place, that does make it really difficult. Also, things like thinking really carefully about first surgical experiences and surgical support, because one of the things that was really interesting for my study for me was about when people felt that they became a vet because I'd sort of assumed I think that it would be maybe when you graduate or when you pass finals or when you start your first job and actually almost universally it wasn't any of those points and I don't know if you want to guess when it was but it was it was when people had completely unsupported done certain what I would call sort of sentinel or key procedures for their field,
0: oh, so I'm you can probably imagine. Jay is right up there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So smallie's vets tend to be sort of really difficult fat bitch bay on their own or GDB <laughs> or something so difficult and abdominal usually, um, in a mode, and sort of middle of the night quite often as well. For um, farm, it would be sort of difficult Caesars yeah. middle of the night, yeah equine you oh. know, yeah <laughs> <laughs> Bottle, colics you know surgical colics those kinds of things and so but the difficult thing about that is it has this model of being a vet that is totally alone totally unsupported and completely self-reliant but not in a kind of healthy self-reliant way actually in a slightly toxic way that because veterinary as we all know works best when it's some kind of team activity even when you're doing on call it's better when there's a team even if it's just handing over cases well from your day stuff to night stuff, those kinds of things and so having this model that you're not a vet until you're working completely isolated alone and you don't have any help is is not helpful for anybody really but it, it was almost universal, which is really kind of interesting for me. And so I'm interested in how we can get this sense of actually, no, you can be a good vet and you don't have to be able to do everything completely on your own. And actually, there's a real strength in getting support, growing, developing with support, those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. And I think that, that, that to me is interesting because actually, it is something that, of course, when you stop and you take a look back, you're looking at, oh, God, do you know what? Yeah, actually, I do. Everything that we measure is. When can I do this on my own? And, and I think, I guess, you know, in some respects, that, that capability of performing procedures on your own is fine. But then actually, some of the best vets I know don't operate. You know, they are phenomenal client managers. They are phenomenal at, you know, sort of directing owners' expectations of what to, and saying, actually, I can't do this, but Joe Bloggs, who is a really good mate down the road, can do it for you. I'll get you good dog. And that client and that animal is well cared for. And actually, that vet has done their job but is there is there any difference between sort of the the approach and the expectations when you're part of like a large team versus a small team because of course over the last 20 years we're now in a situation where there's a lot more one and two man practices compared to where there used to be a lot more bigger practices
1: Yeah, I think it varies a lot. I think one of the things that did really stand out to do with those kind of sort of slightly smaller models was the impact of staffing difficulties on new graduates. This was a much bigger issue than I'd expected, Um, because you'd often think that new graduates wouldn't be the people most affected by staffing difficulties, you might think that would be perhaps the nursing team or perhaps the senior people, but actually the new graduates bore a lot of it because it tended to be when there was a staffing difficulty, their support was the first thing that went. And so, and in fact, literally often it was their support that was leaving and the support just wasn't there for whatever reason, because replacements didn't happen or replacements were people without the capacity to support. And so it's this difficulty if you've gone into a job that looks like it has all the right support and then it becomes a job that actually doesn't have any and you know how do people negotiate those difficult situations in work and I think it can be really difficult for practices as well when they're facing staffing challenges to make sure that people are supported in the right way and it can be difficult too for practices. I definitely wouldn't put this all on sort of one-sided thing because I think there is something about how easy we find it as professionals to ask for support support of all different types as well so not just sort of somebody to talk to but actually what you would call instrumental support so practical assistance with for example doing surgery like i would like somebody scrubbed in with me or i would like this particular equipment or those kinds of things actually how easy we find it to ask for those things and i think some employers genuinely want to provide those things but don't know what it is that people want and those conversations don't always happen in a way
0: that works for both sides. Yeah, I think it's quite ironic, really, as a as a profession whose mainstay is based around communication, we're sometimes not brilliant at that internal communication. In, or, in order to su- to support, you know, our own clinical and and mental well-being over that that sort of you know whatever cases we're dealing with. And of course, you know, sort of you go student phase, you go through that initial six months of new grad phase. Did, did you find that there was any difference between people who'd had, you know, things like graduate schemes that they'd been on or, or those that just sort of went into a practice that was just kind of like, OK, we make this up as we go along. And of course, like, you know, there's fantastic initiatives like, you know, Lizzie Busey Dyke set up, you know, obviously grads to vets looking at the, the that sort of support for the independent uh, practice. Uh, but w- was there a difference between people that went on to a, you know, a grad scheme versus yeah. that didn't?
1: Absolutely. So I suppose one of the really interesting things again here was the range and the variability. There was almost more intra sort of scheme or intra sort of set variability than in between them. And I think there were lots of reasons for that. One of the big things that affected that was staffing. So I think sometimes there were good intentions and they just didn't happen. But I think one of the things that was quite shocking and actually really difficult as someone who I suppose is has you know been out in the profession for a while and really loves the profession and cares about it and you know it's, it's been so much of my life was seeing how some things that on paper look like they were they should be one of the most supportive structures you could imagine for a new graduate I mean I'm not naming names but it's in terms of the types of things but actually were some of the most difficult and I think that can That was down to a lot of things like psychological safety at work, so being able to ask questions and not be shamed and being able to get support when you need it for practical instrumental support as well so those kinds of things are so important so it's not enough just to have something on paper it has to actually happen and be authentic and be genuine and for that support to be there and i think for people's changing needs to be understood as well so um, you know if somebody loses confidence over an issue that you know that is something that can happen to all of us at different times in our career isn't it you have something that goes wrong it affects your confidence and then at that point what you need is you need your colleagues to stand alongside you kind of pick you up keep you going and then and help you to rebuild that not to start you know not for things to start getting worse and worse and the I suppose practices abilities to help people through incidents like that really varied as well so I think there's a there's a real range across our sector but that's good in a way because it means that there is really really good practice that we can potentially learn from so there's stuff that is going well for people and one of the amazing things I suppose about getting to do a study like this was just being totally inspired by the participants in this study you know who went through some really tough things you know some of them had an amazing first few years some of them had a really tough first few years but just the way they've come through it and then being aware of what some of them are doing now just absolutely fantastic individuals and i think our profession has so much hope for the future in terms of you know the the people we've got coming through there's some really amazing people there i think that's
0: it isn't it you know there's there's all, all too often we're sort of surrounded by this sort of rhetoric that we're a profession in in despair and, you know, there's people leaving the profession left, right and centre. But I think what is often ignored in that is that there are so many people doing so many great things in the profession that, that you know, for us actually creates that really positive future outlook. And I, and I think sometimes we are a little bit guilty of being, Drawn into this sort of doom and gloom of oh you know goodness you know this isn 't going in the right direction there's only one way the profession is going but but of course, I guess one of the downsides is that you know we know that we 're a profession that does have a a huge uh, mental strain, and of course uh, that leads us nicely on to, to your involvement with vet life, and I think you know you've you 've been paramount in in shaping vet life into what it is sort of presently but i just wondered sort of you know from your own stance what why did you get involved with with vet life in the first place you know why was that important to you oh
1: that's a good question so so i'd been involved with the samaritans before i was involved with vet life and in fact i'm still involved with samaritans as well it's been 15 years now i've been doing samaritans and i started doing that the year i graduated from vet school and that was, there was a couple of reasons in that. I'd lost a friend to suicide when I was younger, um, before university. And then um, when I was at university, one of, our, one of our clinical teachers died by suicide as well. And I think that affected all of us. And I'm sure, you know, I know a lot of people remember her. And I remember I, I thought a lot at the time about, you know, implications of that. Um, when I'd been seeing practice when I was a teenager, the vet at the practice where I saw practice has also died by suicide. So even before I entered the profession, I think I had this awareness that actually, you know, there is this this really sort of difficult challenge that we face as a profession and how do we support people when they're feeling so desperate and they're struggling so much. And so I started volunteering with Samaritans and I found that I really loved it. And actually it was one of the best things I did as a new grad because it helped me to meet a totally different group of people who I would never have met otherwise. Okay. So a lot of them don't have pets. Some of them don't even like animals. And so, <laughs> and so it was really good for me moving to a new city, starting doing this, meeting this amazing bunch of people, really lovely. And it also really challenged me because some of the life stories you listen to are so different from experiences I've had or so similar. And it just was a really, um, I suppose, useful experience for me. I, it, it was strange because around about the same time I started getting involved in research on veterinary mental health I also got involved in that life and that was very much just from caring about people who are struggling wanting to be alongside them wanting to be able to give people an opportunity to talk but also knowing that this happens in our profession as well so <laughs> I started with VetLife in 2007 as a volunteer on the helpline and also as an area rep for the financial support for VetLife which not as many people know about but that VetLife financial support provides support to people who are struggling significantly financially usually because of their health so usually because of mental or physical health problems Um, and VetLife financial support can provide one-off grants it can provide a regular um, grants to people as well who are really struggling. And that's all financially assessed. But some of the difficulties that people are facing are really acute. So it tends to be things like making sure somebody doesn't become homeless. So keeping people in housing, making sure they've got food, making sure they've got basic transport. So it's people who are in you know, really difficult situations. It's a real privilege to be able to do something quite, I suppose, practical to help them. So I've done both of those for 13 years. And around about the same time as I started that, I became interested in mental health research and I suppose some of it is just that that thing that when you're in practice or when you're doing that stuff or when you're doing kind of very exposed public facing stuff you sometimes have bigger questions about well some of these issues seem really systemic how can we change them and um, and looking at the evidence there was some really good work out there but there were really big gaps and so I thought well it'd be interesting to look at some of this so I did a human public health masters which at Edinburgh, which was again a totally amazing experience and this is something that I suppose has been a real defining thing in my career that sometimes the most amazing interesting things have happened when I'm not just working with vets but when I'm working with people from other backgrounds as well. So you have that amazing veterinary energy and working with vets who are incredibly inspiring and fantastic but you also have people with very different paradigms different backgrounds and you're kind of working together in this really synergistic way so i found that really interesting and i think that human public health side has really interested me from a veterinary point of view as well because one of the things i think we make as a bit of a mistake in veterinary mental health is we look at mental health as an individual problem That mental health is all down to the person and that in a way almost becomes what you'd call a deficit model that there's something wrong with that person and actually a lot of the time, especially when you see lots of people in the same situation having similar difficulties, there's something wrong with our systems and yet people are experiencing the effects of those and they may be experiencing lots of other things as well but there's opportunities for intervention if we can change those things that are contributing to people's difficulties then that's great. So, so those kind of public health models and mental health really interested me so I went on to do PhD which being a cohort study was quite slow <laughs> but it was worthwhile and I think it's been a real inspiration to me the opportunity to get to follow people through that stage of career to see how people got through things and to sort of go
0: on and think about other things that might come from that research as well yeah and of course like you know there's there are highs and lows for all of us in our professional lives as well as our private lives um, and you know this phase of certainly new grad uh, lives you know you go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows 14 times a day and you know i mean i, I remember going from like you know great, I've dealt with my first colic or I've done my first bitch spay or I've you know, done my first bitch cesarean to, you know, oh my God, I've just put the vaccine needle through and squirted the owner in the face. And, you know, it happens. And, and of course, you know, as you, as you rightly say, there's something I guess I've probably never thought about is the fact that, you know, it, there's so many commonalities in the issues faced by people that actually, you know, there is clearly an issue with the system. Not to say that it's just this is the one thing that will make it better. Of course, that's, that's never going to be the case. Um, you know, it is a system made up of individuals. But how do you even fathom going about making such seismic changes that will impact the profession? How, how, how do you start on that kind of journey?
1: So I suppose one of the things that, having a background in helpline stuff is actually incredibly useful for is getting to see the way that people manage to survive difficult situations. If even a tiny fraction of the burden they're carrying is alleviated, even if it's just that they're not the only one who knows about that situation and someone else knows and someone else cares, just that little fractional difference in what they're carrying that day can give people enough space and enough strength to carry on sometimes and that's pretty amazing it takes a long time to get your head around like how you know how that can make a difference but it can and so i suppose for me there's a bit of a a motto in that just because you can't do everything isn't a reason not to do anything so you should still do something even if you can't fix it all because it is worth it so So I suppose for me that has a bit of a thing in research as well, like not being overwhelmed by the task. It's really easy to get overwhelmed in this stuff, but actually looking for small interventions is entirely worthwhile because it might make just one percentage point difference, but making one percentage point difference to everybody at a population level potentially takes a few people to a much, to a different place, to a better place. It also just incrementally making lots of changes like that is worthwhile. It's worthwhile in suicide prevention, it's worthwhile in public mental health, it's worthwhile in lots of different ways. So yeah, you'd love for those massive interventions, and there are some things that are big that can be good. But sometimes it is about those small things as well. Um, And it's about core stuff as well, like things like making sure that people have rest, making sure that people have respectful workplaces, making sure that people aren't discriminated against at work, those really core things. And we're still not doing all of those to the extent that we could. So there are loads of opportunities for intervention in this. And one of the things that really kind of worries me sometimes about the messaging in veterinary mental health And this is actually something that came up in my phd that's quite unusual and quite novel and it might be an area that veterinary informs other areas of mental health and suicide research is that i worry that the way we talk about mental health and suicide the way that we talk not the fact that we talk we need to talk could potentially make things worse and what i mean by that is sometimes we have these conversations around mental health and suicide as though It's an inevitability that it's almost amazing that we're all still here. And you sometimes hear people say things like that. And those kinds of conversations and those kinds of thoughts and feelings that we create through our culture and through the messages that we receive and that we give potentially could be really difficult and really um, affect people who are vulnerable because it might increase something called cognitive availability so when someone's really struggling what solutions do you come up with you tend to come up with the solutions that are kind of aware you're aware of in the culture that you have there's also something called cultural scripting whereby people tend to follow the identity paths that are already set out a little bit through life so you sort of follow an identity through life that you know you role model on certain types of if what we're saying to people is that vets who are in trouble, you know, go on to die by suicide or that vets who are in trouble, you know, have really serious mental health problems and feel overwhelmed and can't cope and can't manage practice and those kinds of things, then that can make it, that can make those kind, make it much harder for people to find hope if those things happen to them and those things happen to so many of us during our careers that we have really difficult times. And so I think it's really important that we offer real hope to people in those situations through the conversations that we have about this stuff. And that we say that yet yeah, lots of us have difficult times. It is normal to have these really tough times, but it's really important that there's help there. And it's really important as well that when people are having tough times, they know that it's not an inevitability that, you know, Bets are going to die by suicide. Actually, there is help and there is support. And although it might be very difficult to find that support, and we know that support isn't nearly as easy to find as it should be, that it is there for people.
0: Mm. And I think perhaps there's sometimes this perception that, you know, you have to be at your lowest ebb before you contact someone like that Life. And I know, you know, for having spoken to multiple people, Personally, over the years, where you speak to them, as, oh well, you know, I didn't want to bother them with this, and you know, I, you know, they're they're much busier helping people that are in a worse situation than me. And of course, you know, we're we're all guilty of, of of you know, sort of perhaps underplaying times when when we're having struggles and and you know, suffering in silence, as it were. But what would you say to people? You know, when's the right time to reach out? And of course, you know, there's going to be variation, but you know is there a good is there a bad time is you know how how is what's an appropriate time for people to reach out to that life
1: so i would say an appropriate time is when you think of it the first time you think of it if you're even considering it it's important to us like i've never in 10 years of sort of managing helpline and being aware of the calls that come through and the emails that come through never ever had anybody say it within helpline, you know, I don't know why they've called, what's wrong. That just never literally would never happen. Um, we wish a lot of the time people called six months, a year before they did, just because we feel so much for all they've been through on their own. And sometimes it's heartbreaking hearing how, how much people have been through on their own and how alone they felt. And, you just really wish that they felt able to call a bit earlier. And another thing I say to people is, look, if you're worried about calling, you're worried about contacting, you know, you're not sure how to start the conversation, how to finish it, just call. Just say, look, I don't know how to start. That's quite common. we are fine at dealing with that or waiting. And look, if it's not going well, if it's not going how you planned, or you suddenly run out of things to say, you can hang up. And, you know, we're not going to you can, use a, you can use a name that's not your real name, you know, it's totally in your control. So if you just want to try for like five minutes and then hang up, that's fine. Um, we're not going to chase you down or anything. It's just your space to use as you want. And it is completely confidential. So when I say you can make up a name, you can call yourself Batman, it really is fine the only time we need to take someone's name is if we're doing an actual referral to the VetLife Health Support Service and that's the professional mental health service that VetLife offer um, which is a free to access service for vets and vet nurses um, and the reason we need your real name for that is because it's an actual medical service with actual medical doctors who have to have your real identity however we do keep that completely confidential and that is separate from the rest of VetLife in terms of the records and things so that wouldn't be something that volunteers would have access to those types of records that are in there so it's very
0: confidential yeah, and it is a case of you can reach out about anything can't you
1: yeah literally and i'm so glad you asked that as well because one of the things that i think people think is it has to be vet related and it totally doesn't so being in or around the veterinary community is enough to qualify you to call um, so anyone working in veterinary practice uh, we get partners of vets as well um, We get veterinary nurses, we get student veterinary nurses, we get practice managers, we get reception, we get VCAs, ACAs, we get everybody. And absolutely doesn't have to be that related. Might be relationships, might be mental health, um, might be self harm, might be suicidal thoughts. Really nothing to do with that. Quite often get sort of family stuff, you know, with students calling, those kinds of things, Um, worries about kids, worries about retirement, loads of different things.
0: And I think that's it, isn't it? I think you know. I've spoken to to so many people over the years who are like, well, you know, it's not big enough. I don't need to be bothering other people. And it's like, literally, you know, these guys are are giving up their time and their knowledge and and their empathy. And I think you know, it's there's nothing. Personally, I look at it and go, there's nothing more satisfying than than finishing a conversation with somebody to go and you know what, I think we've helped them in that circumstance and you know from my point of view obviously that a lot of that comes down to careers perspectives which is to a large extent minutia compared to some of the the bigger issues that people face but but it is a case of i think we are getting better as a profession at talking about mental health issues about our concerns some of my friends would say that i probably tell them far too much about my life (laughs) but but actually i think that that capability you know we have have clients come into to you know, consults with us all the time and you sort of wonder how much of their life they can squeeze into a 15 minute slot. And it's amazing how much we all know about our clients. And wouldn't it be fantastic if we were that comfortable to be able to be that open with with others who can help and support us through that. I think that's, one of the great things that vet life has certainly brought brought to the fore over the last, certainly the last 12 years that I've been in the profession, and I know somebody's obviously when it's been VBF beforehand and then sort of transitioned, there's thousands of vets that have been helped. What's your, what's your most proud moment of your involvement with it? And sometimes it's hard, obviously, to sort of admit pride about these things, but there's got to be something that jumps out.
1: I suppose... It's one of these things that's really interesting because actually when you're kind of doing sort of maybe more strategic stuff, or you're building services or you're starting new services, some of the big things we did was, you know, start the email service and that's had a huge, you know, amount of impact on the amount of contacts we get, which is great. But actually for me, I think it goes back to something you were saying, which is, you know, this feeling that people have that there are burden on people or, you know, that they shouldn't bother us, those kinds of things. Actually, the thing that is most rewarding by a long way about doing this kind of stuff is... Is, is often still volunteering and still, you know, picking up the phone and talking to somebody and the trust they put in you. That's, and I think people working in practice will totally resonate with this because you will all have something that you really love about the job that you do, hopefully, and just being able to be there for people it is a huge privilege. And I think for me as well, working alongside the amazing volunteers on helpline, so we have around seventy volunteers on helpline who are some of the most amazing people you could imagine. And just getting to getting to know them, getting to see the care they have for the profession, getting to see the way that they support people. It gives me huge hope for the profession because there is this enormous amount of care there. And I think sometimes when people are struggling or have been through a really difficult time, it, it can genuinely feel like they're on their own and nobody gets it. And... Actually, trying to connect those people with people who really do care and who want to be there for them and who will be there for them, and as a service, will be there as long as it takes. You can call us as many times as you like, and you know we sometimes say to people who are struggling, look, you know, you can call us back in an hour. If it's you know not feeling any better, give us another call. We're here all night, and you know sometimes that is what it takes. It's an hour at the time, and to be able to be there for people through times like that is an enormous privilege and really rewarding
0: yeah and of course PhD is now done we now have a massive insight into that transitional phase what's next
1: yeah so um, obviously carrying on with helpline is really important you know making sure that service is still available for people and the amazing work that VetLife does and it's a huge privilege to work alongside the staff and trustees at VetLife as well because a fantastic group of people maintaining some pretty amazing services and I am biased but I think it's pretty amazing um, that our profession is able to offer this for itself, because um, it very much is a veterinary service provided by veterinary professionals, for veterinary professionals. I think that's really important and one of its strengths. But for me, I'd like to do um, to carry on some more research as well. Um, there's some really, I think, important work to be done, a study I'm trying to set up at the moment. Um, really important looking at suicide prevention in fact so very applied um suicide prevention so what can we actually practically do that will reduce that risk of suicide and i know this is a topic that a lot of people might feel sort of overwhelmed by or might think well actually you know that's not possible but the evidence very much says that it is so suicide prevention as an activity there are things that work and there are things that help and there's lots of evidence from other fields and so it's thinking about well Which of these could we try in VET and which of these might help? Um, And there's a couple of opportunities for intervention that look possibly like they're worth looking at. So so trying to develop some research from there. And what I would really love to do as well, and as always in research, is trying to find funding for it, would be to carry on the cohort study that I did. So the people who took part in it now are now now, um, five, six years out. And so the interesting thing about that is that's a really key time. We know, for people's careers in terms of staying in practice particularly, which is obviously a big thing, for the types of practice that people go to, whether they leave the profession, whether they go on to do other things. And so I think understanding, for understanding veterinary careers, it could be really important to pick up with this group. And they were an incredibly... I think incredibly generous group with their time as well, and a huge amount of respect for them for that. And they agreed to stay in the study if it does carry on. So that is a possibility. And I would love to do that, to have this group that we followed so we know what works for people and what doesn't. Because I think sometimes a lot of the stuff is so well-intentioned and vet in terms of trying to do things that help. But it's really important that we know what works and what doesn't. You know, We're an evidence-based, evidence-based group of people. I don't need to make that case. So um, yeah. Um, it'd be nice to do that too.
0: Cool, and obviously, you know, we started this this podcast talking about you know people in that new graduate phase and things like that. And I just wonder, what would you say to people who are you know coming towards their end of vet school? So you know, people going into final years, thinking about first jobs, guys who've taken jobs and started them and are perhaps not enjoying them, or guys that have, have taken jobs and are loving them. What would be your sort of snippet of advice to those guys about that sort of transitional phase what have you taken out of your learnings from what other people have done that that may make that more enjoyable for people
1: yeah absolutely and i suppose in some ways this is quite individual as well because different things work for different people but one of the things that i think is really important is if the support is right that will really help um, and that's instrumental as well as emotional support. So it's that practical support for the tasks you need to do at work. And, and one of the things that we often get on, for example, when people call helplines, so one of our most common calls is from a relatively new graduate, a theoretical, relatively new graduate. Um, obviously, we'd never identify anybody who called, um, who's really struggling in practice. They thought they were going to have support. The support for whatever reason hasn't materialised. They've had discussions. It hasn't, still isn't there. And they're worried about looking for somewhere else because they think no one's going to give them a job or it's going to affect their CV, those kinds of things. I would just say your confidence should be gradually rising while you're in practice. Yet we all have days where it's not so good, but it shouldn't be on a downward plane. And you should be feeling like you can trust your colleagues and you're supported by them. And those working relationships are really important our work as vets and as veterinary nurses as well is potentially really, really important for mental health. Um, And that's to do with lots of things, it's to do with occupation, it's to do with meaning, Um, but that sense of meaning and fulfillment is really important. So I think as well as sort of looking for that support and being prepared to move if the support ultimately isn't right and it's not working out, um, because I think one of the things that study people were always surprised by was how quickly they found new employment. When they did move and how different it could be and how there were practices like they had never imagined that did exist i think one of the other things as well is around i think sometimes there's this real pressure that you know you've been building up to this thing for so long this better thing and there's sort of this thing that suddenly all your problems should go away because you graduated that why aren't i euphorically happy now and do you know, it can be really hard. It can be a really hard time for some people. It's a great time for some people. It's a really difficult time, and that's okay. It doesn't mean it's always going to be like that. It doesn't mean you're the only one who's ever had it that way. And the good things about that are that people get through it, and those people who have got through it will want to help you. Um, so, remember, there is somebody who wants to help you, even if you haven't been able to find them yet. There are people out there who want to help and who want to support. So, I think those things are really important. I think as well. Thinking carefully about who you're role modeling on and how some of the things about veterinary identity aren't good for our well being. They're just not. So, some of the ways that we think about being a good vet aren't great for our well being. For example, the way that our profession gives really high status to certain types of veterinary activity and other types of veterinary activity are considered not being a real vet, those kinds of things. Actually, You know, that doesn't—it doesn't help us as a profession to think in this really narrow way about what it is to be a vet. It doesn't help people's mental health necessarily either to have high status on certain activities and not on others, um, lots of pressure for certain activities and not others. But I think as well, there's this sense of being a good vet is not asking for help, and that isn't what being a good vet is. Because actually, to to get through all the difficulties we face in our careers, as well as to help other people through them, when we're in a better place and we're in a place where we're able to support others it's about accepting help, knowing how to ask for it, knowing how to work with other people, knowing that you're not on your own and that it's a horrible day, but there are people who are here for me. Those things are really important. And so finding a way to adopt a way of being a vet, finding a way to be, that is healthier and happier for you. So finding what's worthwhile. And I sometimes say to people, when you're like going through seeing practice, going through your first few years in your job, you know, you don't have to stick with what you're doing. It's one of the great things about our career that actually you can switch to. I know it's not always easy. It can be a little bit expensive, but um, it is it is possible. And I say to people, find what makes you feel alive, find what you love. And yeah, we don't all get to do that all the time, but find some of it because this job is hard. Sometimes it's very enjoyable as well, but it is hard. And To do something that's hard, you need that meaning. You need something that makes it feel worthwhile. You need that thing that makes you feel alive. So find that thing and hold on to it, even if it's not the thing that's high status, even if it's not the thing that you thought you would be doing when you started out, because I'm definitely not doing what I thought I would be doing, but I love what I do. So yeah, so allow yourself to kind of get off that treadmill of what you thought you were going to be doing and look around and see what else is
0: there. Yeah, and I think that's great advice. I think, you know, enjoying the journey. And I think, you know, it, it, it's so easy in modern society to get caught up in the, well, this is where society tells me I have to be. This is where my school tells me I need to go. This is where my university tells me I need to, this is what my degree tells me that I need to be doing next. Actually, do you know what? You write your own destiny in life. And, you know, if you'd have said to me 12 years ago when I graduated, one, I'd be a small animal vet. Two, I would love small animal dentistry. And three, I'd have my own podcast. One, I'd have said, what the hell's a podcast? But, but you know, it, it, isn't, it doesn't always end up how we we have it set up in our heads. But actually, I'm happier now than I have ever been. But I needed all of those other experiences to make me realize how much I enjoy what I do now. And I think, you know, that is no experience is a bad experience even though it can be a hard and a tough experience and i know that that is is cliched somewhat but i think you know i'm a firm believer in that we take learnings from every experience in our life and as long as we do something positive with those learnings whether that's from our work situation whether that's from our personal situation but to me that is all about you know, getting towards that end point of, yeah, you, know, you speak to anybody in life, I don't know anyone who has ever told me that they are 100% happy with everything that goes on in their life. I'd certainly know that my wife would tell me that there's a multitude of things that I do wrong on a regular basis. But I think to me it is so important that people appreciate that not everything will be perfect all of the time. And, and when things do get tough, there are fantastic organizations like VetLife to reach out to because we don't have all of the answers all of the time. All of those of us that have gone back to the car to check for drugs and actually we're checking a textbook or we're phoning a mate to go, What the hell is this? or taking the cat out the back to weigh it. Guess what? It's because we don't have the answers. The owners don't need to know that we don't have the answers, but that applies to every aspect of our lives. And I think it's so important as individuals and as a profession that we go, do you know what? It's okay not to have the answers. And, and you know, again, I, I really hope the phrase, it's okay not to be okay, never becomes cliched. But at the same time, it is that realisation that, yeah, do you know what? If I'm having a bad day, there's people to reach out to. Uh, at the same time, if I'm having a good day, there's others that might be having a bad day that I can help.
1: Totally, totally. And another thing you touched on there, which I think is so important is this sense of, I think sometimes in vet, it's so easy to kind of compare ourselves to like where our, you know, classmates in vet school are now or what other people are doing or to constantly benchmark yourself against other people. And actually I, that very, very rarely leads to happiness in that. Um, I sometimes say pick up the bench and just put it in the bin, stop the benchmarking, just, just, Figure out where you want to be. It's your own path, and one of the things I think that can really help in that, and our very sort of competitive nature of our training doesn't always help with this, but is actually genuinely learning to unconditionally celebrate in other's successes. So just be so happy when things go well for other people, and it can be difficult, you know, if you're in a tough career place yourself to learn to do that, but it can be, I think, really freeing. that other's success. Doesn't mean that you failed. You can be happy for others succeeding. Find your own path. So I think that's really important too.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a great place to wind up on. Really, to to celebrate not just your own successes but everybody else's successes, and we all have them, no matter how big, no matter how small. So Rosie, thank you so much. Um, I know sort of it's 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 brought back for me lots of memories of that sort of transitory phase from student yeah. to, to adult. I say adult, to uh, to working clinical professional. But I think that's sometimes how it feels, doesn't it? That sort of, okay, I'm no longer a student. I'm actually paying tax now.
1: But, do you know, if anyone listening is having a difficult time, either because they're going through that transition or because they're supporting people going through that transition and they're worried about them, or just there's something else you've mentioned, you know, that life is always there and it is never too, too small an issue to call about.
0: Um, you know,
1: if it's bothering you, we want to hear about it.
0: And I think that's it, you know, it's it's manned, as Rosie said, it's manned by 70 people who are more than happy to give up their time and support everybody, no matter how big or small something is in your own head, is in someone else's head, you know, reach out and, you know, you'd be amazed the positive impact just having conversations are. At the same time, what we don't want everyone thinking is that, you know, we're all going to have problems left, right and centre. You know, it is... This is still a remarkable profession that is incredibly rewarding. For those of you who are in your final years, who are just starting out, you have got an amazing adventure ahead of you. And some of you will still be vets in a decade. Some of you may well be doing what Rosie and I are doing in a decade, in two decades, in three decades' time. But no matter what you end up doing, that's the right thing for you to be doing. And if it isn't, the great news is you can swap and change to something else, So. Rosie, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to seeing how vet life evolves and, and, you know, seeing it help more and more people. You know, it's such a blessing as a profession to have these kind of facilities. Not everybody has them. And so thank you for all of your hard work in that. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Rosie, Rosie's recently been been awarded the RCBS Impact Award, which probably gives you an, a, an idea of the magnitude of how much she's put in, to help in the profession. Now, of course, when you say this to incredibly humble people, they have no words because you sit there and just say, oh, I'm not sure what to do with all of these compliments. So those of you that are watching this, Rosie's just giggling away in the background, but I don't know what to say now. But yeah, I think, you know, it can't be understated how much individuals like Rosie contribute to the profession. But I think it's also important to say that to make a difference in the profession, you don't need to have an RCBS Impact Award. When Rosie's done all of this, she didn't have this award as, a, as an end goal. You know, it's a it's a positive outcome from it, but anybody out there in this profession can make a positive impact, whether that's on thousands, whether that's on one individual, it doesn't matter. But, but you know, to, to turn around at the end of the day and go, do you know what? I've given someone a hand. It's quite just a, a nice warm feeling there. So Rosie... Thank you so much. I'm going to let you go and yeah, just keep Thanks up cool. and thank you to everybody else at VetLife and everybody who helped Rosie through her PhD and all of those of you on the cohort study. I'm fairly sure that Rosie will be getting in touch with you soon. So, right, okay, let's see where you're all at. Great.
1: Thank you. It's good to speak to you.
0: Cheers, Rosie.
1: Okay. Bye. <laughs>